1: Hello and welcome to episode 147 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my live streaming career as a radio presenter with one big regret, never getting to interview my hero, the legendary singer, songwriter and musician Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. And on this episode of the podcast, delighted to be joined by another absolute legend in the music industry. This fella's impact on drumming and music is undeniable. Bev Bevan is my very special guest. We're talking The Move, ELO, Black Sabbath. And of course, Paul Weller. Yes, he played on the Wake Up The Nation album that was released in 2010. And as you'll hear, actually, Bev was second choice. We'll find out why. And we'll talk about his entire career as well. His exceptional talent, that innovative style, that influential presence that have made him so well respected in the music industry and an inspiration to so many up and coming drummers fueling their own musical journeys. This is a real delight.
2: Let's get into it. Bev Bevan, thanks for joining me. You're very welcome. been trying to set this up for a while, haven't we? So we finally got it together.
1: Right? We've been chatting for a while, and I'm so glad that you're here because, I mean, there's so much to talk about. There are well weller connections that we'll get into, but, I mean, how are we going to cover your career in the time that we have is, is an impossible job, my friend, because what a career it is, right?
2: <laughs> you know, I thank my lucky stars, really, that I've, for my whole life, I've spent doing what I love doing, you know, just playing drums and, and working with some great people. I had a proper job, for one, when I left school. I had a job in a... Departmental store called the Beehive in Birmingham. Which, if you remember, are you being served? It was just like that. <laughs> I'm free. All right. Yeah. Yeah, and I was uh, along with Jasper Carrot. who was my oldest friend.
1: I saw this connection. This is lovely. So you've been yeah. mates from what
2: over sixty years? Then we met on our first day at grammar school. So uh, um when we we're eleven years old, and, and we're still good pals now. So yeah, yeah. Love it.
1: Love it. He was such a, I remember him being on TV when I was growing up and, and just us loving his his brand of comedy. I mean, he's so good. So, so good. I, love I mean, that's a whole separate conversation just about Jasper Carrot as a podcast. But anyway, um, let's talk about this instrument of choice for you, because I always think the drummer, you have the best view of the entire gig. I mean, occasionally that you'll have the singer and the band in front of you and their heads in the way, but you get to see from your pedestal the entire thing, everything
2: going on, don't you? That's true, actually. I, um, I hadn't really thought about it like that. But yeah, you're right. Yes, you do. You get to see everything you see the audience. You see the, the backs of the, lots of musicians' heads. Uh, <laughs> the story about the drums is that I was at school, late 50s, and like lots of other top people at the time, we formed a school band. I mean, there were hundreds of school bands, I'm sure, throughout the country. I got a few mates, and the lead singer is named Ronnie, and we call the band Ronnie and the Renegades. And I said, Well, I'm going to be the singer. And another mate said, Well, I want to play guitar. And like, oh, I, I said, Well, I- I'll play drums. And I'd never picked up a pair of sticks in my life, so but I was determined I was going to play drums. And then, it, the, obviously, the first thing I needed was a drum kit. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I went to my mum, and my dad uh, died when I was ten years old. Uh, so it's just me and my mum. I got no brothers or sisters. to had a shop. And we lived above it. And I asked my mum, "Could I have a, a kit of drums?" I've be I've been to Birmingham. I found this uh, a Broadway kit, and it's thirty five pounds, which in di- uh, at that time was a bloody fortune. Yeah, it's a, a lot of money. Yeah. And my mum immediately said, "Yes." Oh wow, that was easy. And I got the kit and everything. Rehearsed quite, rehearsed in the shop quite a bit. And I found that I could play. Uh, I never had a lesson or anything. Uh, not well, but I could play and certainly keep time. And then learned how to use the bass drum and the hi-hat and whatever. After about a couple of months, my mum said to me, You know, I'm so pleased you can, you know, you're playing drums, because that's what your dad did. He had a dance band. And my dad's name was Charles Thomas Bevan. But the dance band was called the Bev Bevan Trio. And so that's how I got my name. I was actually named. Wow. That stage name. Um, so it's all a bit spooky, really.
1: That's fabulous. And then you had no idea, obviously, until your mum, after after the drum kits already arrived, that this backstory.
2: Yeah. And then my mum showed me a couple of things. Like, you know, she also got them like uh, tickets to to local dances and things, you know, dancing to the the Bev Bevan Trio.
1: Yeah, lovely. (laughs) That's wonderful. How lovely. And at that point, so this is pre-Beatles, pre-Ringo being an influence and all that, I suppose. So
2: who were your influences? What were you... Consuming as a, in terms of other drummers, I, I didn't know the names were. Really. I mean, I loved um, Turn like or Hal Blaine uh, was a, a big influence, played on all the Every Brother records. Oh, yeah, yeah, it was like Phil Spector and that sort of stuff, yeah. And then, then Phil Spector, love what, what, what he was doing, and DJ Fontana played for Elvis. Well, and then sort of Sandy Nelson came along, and they're all basically American drummers. The only drummers are, drummers that I saw on TV was uh, when we saw Cliff in the Shadows, and it was Tony Meehan to begin with, and then Brian Bennett. I just listened to records, and because I very rarely saw live music, but there were lots of local bands, and it was in 63, I met. Denny Lane he asked me to form a band with him we were at a sort of night school together in Birmingham and he'd seen me play with my little band and liked the way I played and Danny was the most ambitious and he's very talented but he's also very sure of himself he was positive he said well we'll form a band and we'll become we'll become really big he got so much confidence in himself.
1: And obviously he did go on. I mean, that's the Moody Blues and he was part of Wings with McCartney, yeah. wasn't he? That's right, yeah. So what was the band that you were in with Danny?
2: I was in, it was called Danny Lane and the Diplomats. Nice. And, <laughs> yeah. And we all we, we all dyed our hair blonde, had like sort of sharkskin suits. And it you know, really looked the looked the business. And Danny was, was excellent. He was great with an audience as well. And I found myself getting better and better. We nearly made it. We got signed to Pie Records with Tony Hutch. In the end, Tony had the boss of Pi said, Look, Tony, you've got two bands here. You can only have one. You've got to choose one. And he chose the other one, uh, who turned out to be the Searchers. Uh So, bad choice, really. (laughs) Uh, fair play. And uh, the highlights were that we worked with little Stevie Wonder and we opened for the Beatles. And we opened for the Rolling Stones, so we, you know, we really felt we were on the scene, really. It's
1: such an exciting time for British music. Then this, is, this is exploding, really, isn't
2: it? Yeah, well, it was. Yeah, I mean, it was all American. It was, it, it was pretty awful up till the Beatles. There wasn't much good British music going around. Cliff made some decent records, and the like Johnny Kid and the Pirates, but there weren't. There was very little going mm. around. And suddenly, the Beatles came along, and you know, the, the English music scene took over in America as well. And the turning point for Denny was when we went to see Spencer Davis' group at Birmingham University, and Denny was just totally blown away with Steve Rimwood. so talented and so young. He was only about like, 12. <laughs> and Denny said, oh, that's it. I'm, I'm not doing any more of this pop crap. He said, I'm, I'm going to be a blues singer. And he, he just left and formed the Moody Blues. So we carried on. Without, we replaced him with a couple of guys, but he was never as good. I and mean, we, we folded after about six months.
1: It's always difficult when the guy's name's in the band name. So presumably you became the diplomats,
2: did you? Without yeah. that, yeah. Yeah. And we got a couple of really good. But they weren't up to Denny's sort of standard. So we folded and then I got invited to join a band called Carl Wayne and the Vikings. We went off to Germany and did that horrendous German stint. A lot of bands did it, including the Beatles, where you were, I mean, it's, it's slave, you know, slave labor, really. I mean, no nice stuff, seven nights a week and you do seven 45 minute spots a night in the weekdays and then 10 at the weekends. 10? 10 45 minute spots. You learn how to play, though, and you get tight. <laughs> but
1: your wrist and- must be knackered, because we're a drummer. It is, and you know, a lot of people like yours just sat behind the kit. You know, it's, it's like, that's hard work, isn't it?
2: Yeah, yeah, it is, yeah. But you, you're not at Chaos Young, you know, fit. We all were. And then, and then we came back, and, and Carl Wayne and the Vikings weren't good. they have been around for years, and so they, they, were, they were never going to make it. And meanwhile, Ace Kefford and Trevor Burton... Uh, had met David Bowie. I think he was David Jones at the time. But he played at the Cedar Club in Birmingham. He was obviously going to make it. And Trevor and Ace asked his advice. You know, we want to be rock stars. What should we do? You know, and he said, "Well, just form the best band you can. Just look." And he, says, he said, "There's hundreds of bands in Birmingham. Just pick pick out the best guys. Rehearse like crazy. Get yourself to London. Get yourself a manager." And that, that's the way to do it. And that's basically what happened because they, they asked Roy Wood to join join them. And then they asked me. There's rumors that they asked John Bonham first, but I've never got to the bottom of that one. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they asked Carl Wayne. And so we became the move. And um, we did rehearse like mad. And we were, wow, we were the tightest band I've ever been in was the original five piece move. Amazing. Um, and we got us off to London. We got a Tony Secunda, who managed us. The real coup was getting us a 30 sort of night residency at the Marquee Club. That was such a massive thing. But on stage, the guys, the four guys had all the dance moves and stuff as well as a uh, four or five piece harmonies. Within oh, three months, we've got record companies queuing up to sign us.
1: When you say that, the interesting thing of that as well for me is um, it's a similar to Weller's, Paul Weller's band at the moment where you've got a lot of people who can sing as well as play. So even, you know, the bass player, the guitarist, even the drummer Steve Pilgrim in, in Paul's band is a singer-songwriter producing his own stuff. All all of those guys could sing, including yourself. Yeah, you know, you've got lovely vocals all of you, haven't you? Yeah,
2: it was, it's unusual, Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you're right about Paul. I, you know, I love Paul's band, so they're all t- very talented in their own rights, yeah.
1: That band, you mentioned the Germany stint before that, but even, you know, when we get to the move, you were gigging a lot, weren't you? you? were touring all the time.
2: We sure were, yeah. Our first record went to number two in the charts, Night of Fear. and I can hear the grass grow, which was a top five hit, and then Flowers in the Rain was another massive hit, and it was also the first record played on Radio 1. Of course, yeah, 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 yeah. Tony Blackburn, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And then Fibregate, another massive hit. Uh, and then Ace Cap had left. He had some, he had some mental issues, really, and didn't help with the amount of drugs he was taking as as well. Uh, and Trevor Burton had the same problem. He he took every drug known to mankind, and and we had a number one with BlackBerry Way, and and Trevor Burton left. I've never heard of anybody Anybody in a band you're number one in the charts and you leave the band. <laughs> <laughs> a bit like
1: Paul when he calls it a day on the jam, you know the the, the, big, the biggest band in the country at the time but but different reasons obviously <laughs> Yeah, There were a couple of people, I, I I mentioned that we were talking on Facebook, right, and a few of the fans got in touch and and wanted to ask me some questions, I'm going to weave these through out as well, because you mentioned Fire Brigade there and this is Nick Butler on Facebook, he said Fire Brigade has got to be one of the best 1960s singles ever. I listened to it first after hearing Paul Weller name check it a musical education he said check out the album something else by the move just amazing and then mark eggins on facebook said did he ever consider the move to be a mod band so two questions for you did you know that weller was name checking that song ever
2: i'll tell you my favorite paul weller story is that about 10 years or so ago he phoned me to ask me to play on the wake up the nation album and he was I – don't, I don't even know where he got my number from. But he was he – he, he said, I'm, yeah, I said, I'm such a massive move fan, man. So I love, I love the move and the who. And he says, but I've got to tell you, you're not my first choice. I said, oh, okay. He said, no. He said, I wanted Keith Moon. He said, but he's been dead 20 years. So he said, but I know you can play like Mooney, so I want you to do that. So I said, yeah, absolutely. <laughs>
1: I love that. Well we'll dig into that story around that session in a
2: bit. Um did you ever consider the move to be a mod band? Well it, it was the time of mods and rockers and it was quite a big deal at the time. And there were proper like battles going on as mods and rockers. But I, I if anything, I think that maybe that Woody and, and Trevor Burden and Ace Capital were quite mod really, yeah. In the way they dressed and everything else. Me and Carl Wayne were more more rockers, really. Mm-hmm. It didn't matter, you know, we uh,
1: you weren't yeah. fighting in the band, having your own Mods and rockers oh, no. battle. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned that residency at the Marquee, and there were so many stories about that and this stint of your manager and stuff that came up in research, where it seemed like
2: well, you were dressed as gangsters when you performed. Was that right? Yeah. Uh, Tony Secunda was a genius of a manager in some respects. He was publicity mad, and he loved the Rolling Stones, and he loved the he, 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 first thing he told us, you don't smile you know, on photos, no smiling. And he took us to Savile Row to have these incredibly expensive suits made, you know, gangster style suits. And it was a really cool image. Um, suddenly, you know, before we looked we looked like, we dressed like the Who, really. You know, the mod trousers and all that stuff. So it kind was brilliant like that. And he had a, a guy called Bobby Davidson, photographer, excellent photographer, who's still around, actually. He came with us just everywhere. Uh, we had thousands and thousands of photos taken. I remember going to Glasgow and we had a, a lot taken in, in the Gorbals, you know, the really unpleasant area of, of Glasgow, with these really scruffy little Glaswegian kids around us. It was such an image, you know. A big mistake he made was that um, he got us sued by the Prime Minister. By having- <laughs> <laughs> what was the story about? There were, there were two stories
1: I saw in research. One was that your, your first album, had been stolen and then it got found and
2: was given back. Was that did that actually happen? Yeah, that was all Secunda. Roy Wood is a m- fantastic songwriter, but he's not prolific. And we got we had we got a couple of hit singles and we wanted to release an album. And Roy just couldn't write quickly enough, so that's why there was a lot of covers on that first album. We were just stalling. Tony Secunda was stalling for time, so he just made up that story and of course more publicity. <laughs>
1: But then the prime minister's story is an actual thing, wasn't it? So this was what was this? This was a cartoon for Flowers in
2: the Rain, a cartoon like postcard, wasn't it? For the single, yeah, yeah. And he, he sent it to all the newspapers and even posted it through Number Ten. And of course, the reaction was that he just thought we—I don't know why—did he did it. it. Was a really dumb. He didn't even tell us he was doing it. And what was it? it was Harold Wilson in bed with his secretary? Was that it? Yeah, cartoon of that. Yeah, basically. <laughs> right. Uh, of course, wasn't took offence and uh, sued us. And we ended up having to pay all the court costs. And we lost all the royalties from Flowers in the Rain and the B-side. Here we go around the lemon tree. And most unfairly of all, Roy Wood lost all the songwriting royalties, which would have amounted to, by now, he's it's, it's, it's probably lost a couple of million on that. Wow,
1: jeez. So presumably, he doesn't exist as a manager
2: for you guys much longer after that, then? No, no, we, we party company. Uh, <laughs> Tony Second, he died oh, quite a few years ago now. But he, he was some character, yeah. Yeah, what a story,
1: my goodness me. Now, you mentioned Weller loving the move. Did he ever talk to you
2: about ELO? Was that a thing in his world at all? No, well, well I, um, when I went down to Is it Black Barn Studios? Yeah. Oh, that was great. I loved it. The fact that he got posters on in the studio of The Move and The Who and Small Faces. I think others, maybe The Kinks. But no, I I, I don't think he was only a low fan, basically. But he did love The Move. i got this. You can see it. I'm going to hold this up. Can you see that?
1: Nice. Cheers, Bev. Top man, Paul. And there's
2: a signed picture of of you. That's Carl Wayne. That was when we met Paul, that's at Abbey Road Studios, many, many years, bloody hell. It must have been way back in the 80s, I think, 90s. And that's when Paul, that's when Paul told us he was a massive fan and could have his picture taken with us, you know. <laughs> I love it. So he's just,
1: yeah, he's just a fan who wants to get his photo with his, with his with his band. Yeah, one of his bands, one of his loves, right?
2: Yeah. And um, so I went to the studio and recorded a couple of tracks in in one day. And he was lovely. He still is. I mean, after seeing him on, um, June the ninth at Cannock Chase Bowl. Oh, you've got tickets, have you? It before the lockdown, Paul played this concert, and I and I we tried to get Mentor, I tried to get tickets, and it was, it was completely sold out. And I still got my contact number for him from when I recorded with him. So I like I found him and said, and you know, any chance of I don't mind paying, but any yeah, you know, can we get a couple of tickets? And he said, oh, leave it with me, man. We were expecting a couple of comp tickets, but when we got there. His uh, tour manager guy met us, took us backstage into Paul's dressing room. We ended up having dinner with Paul and his wife and his kids. And then Paul said, Come on. And he, he picked up two drum stalls, took us up to the stage uh, where the support band were playing at the time, and put these two drum stalls actually on the stage. I mean not back on the side of the stage, on the stage, and sat us down there. And <laughs> we and we just watched the show, his show. Sitting on stage, everyone in the audience could see us, and he was—he was just so lovely. It really
1: was. That's brilliant. I think that photo. I think I saw a photo of you with the guys from Stone Foundation at one of the forest gigs. So that would have been that, yeah.
2: One, yeah, yeah. Oh, brilliant. It's, we're doing the same again. I don't know whether, whether we'll be sitting on stage again, but I texted him when we, when Joanna got got married about eight months ago, and he was really. Delighted for us.
1: He's, he's a lovely man. Oh, uh, that's really nice. I love the fact that people in the front row and that would have been looking on stage, going, "Who are those who sat on the stools?" <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Oh, they might recognise you. you Where's Beethoven Beth sat on the stool? Yeah. <laughs> is he going to play? What's happening? Uh, uh, <laughs> let's talk Yellow and this band that comes after the move. It's almost like a side project of the move, isn't it? And then split the move. Was it? Was the intention always to split the move for a new band? Why? Why was there this kind of crossover?
2: Well, because it was the record company. One, we, we just had. Our 10th hit, uh, with California Man. Um, and that was another massive hit. That's a great tune, man. God. <laughs> yeah, I like it. Um, and, and the record company were just were very happy with the, the move, but the move by this time, uh, Carl Wayne had left as well. So it was myself, Roy Wood and Jeff Lynn and, Je- and Jeff and Roy had very much got this idea of, a, of forming this new band, which turned out to be Electric Light Orchestra. But we were contracted to do a, another move album, which we did. It actually is a good, it's a good good album called Message from the Country, all Jeff and Roy songs. But that helped pay for recording the, the first ELO album really. It wasn't a, a a massive success at all. But we had a one or five throughout Overshire was a was a big hit single. It. And then Roy left. <laughs>
1: <laughs> hey, no, I have to ask you about that song, right? So where is it? So Andy Kennedy on Twitter. He said, How did ELO not sue on hearing Paul Weller's riff on the Changing Man, which is the same as 10538 Overture, did you know? I mean, you know this, obviously.
2: I, I've heard it. I've heard about this, and I, and I checked it out. and I, and I wouldn't have. It's pretty. It. It's pretty similar. You know what I think? Pretty. It is pretty similar, but it, you know. I didn't write the song, and he's very welcome to it. <laughs> <laughs> These days, there'd be a whole massive
1: court case, like Ed Sheeran's style, wouldn't there? But you know, <laughs> and, and it feels a bit like the Jam and the Style Council, where Paul Weller you know, created the Style Council because he couldn't, he felt he was restrained by the Jam, couldn't do what he wanted to do in the Jam. Was it that ELO was the the vision for ELO was such an evolution from and so different from what the Move were that you couldn't just do that in that Move framework?
2: No, you couldn't. In fact, we it was very ambitious what we did. Uh, it's it's one thing in the in the studio, you, you know, using classical instruments, but when you have to go out and do it on stage, it was a real mess. I, mean, I think that's probably why Roy left because uh, he sounded terrible. Really, we'd got uh, the cello and violin, French horn. Roy was playing cello as well. We did a tour like that, and it was a bloody awful. <laughs> so Roy, he, he obviously didn't like the way it was going, and he he went off and formed Wizard. Immediately had massive hit records. Wizard, Jeff and I basically along with Richard Tandy, reformed ELO into a seven piece. And we started touring America and we found these pickups called Barker's Berry pickups, which you put on the cello, the cellos and the violin. And it worked. Um, you could hear them uh, uh, along with a regular rhythm section, basically, a seven piece. And we started really... Doing what the move had never done, the move should have gone to America and toured, and I think we'd have done well. But that was bad management from Tony Ciccone. We didn't do that, but we were determined with with ELO to to crack America, and that's what we did. Our first gold album, first big hit album, was El Dorado, and our first big hit single was Can't Get It Out of My Head. Now both massive in America, and neither one of them were hits in. Prison.
1: The interesting thing as well, when you talk about that, there's a difference between creating this in the studio, obviously, and manipulating it with tape as it would have been at the time and layering things up and doing that on the road. And this was really like the first time that had been done because you think about the Beatles and Sgt. Pepper's got all those kind of effects and distortion and playing things backwards and layering things up and all that, but they never talked.
0: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place.
1: or any of that stuff at all, did they? From after, what, was 66, something like that, I think, wasn't it, their last gig's life? So, yeah, you really were breaking the mould and kind of pushing forward with with what could
2: be done on stage. Massively influenced by the Beatles. I mean, totally. We were just huge Beatle fans and loved what they were doing in the studio with George Martin. The incredible things they were doing with classical instruments, to a much lesser degree, but we were... To get on the road, yeah. And it was very different, and no one had ever seen any like it. And, and the Americans took to us. We ended up doing a, another big breakthrough for us. Is we did a, a huge, huge tour with Deep Purple as special guests. We were almost around 50, 60 stadium-type shows, and they were great guys to work with. I've known guys out of Deep Purple for a while. So we learned how to play the big arenas as well, and then... So when we came to top of the bill sort of following year, we felt at home doing it.
1: And it's also around that time where people were starting thinking about lighting and how you visualise those types of shows on a huge big stage as well, which, you you know, ELO were absolute masters of that type of
2: thing too. Yeah, well, of course, we had had Don Arden managing us. He was ambitious. And of course, his daughter, Sharon Arden, she became Sharon Osborne in later life. They had great ideas. I think we were the first band to use lasers, for instance. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the spaceship tour w- was pretty extraordinary. Um, <laughs>
1: yeah. I love the idea, like the, the, like we were just brainstorming in a room, coming up with like, these ideas, you know, for a tour. And then, but you lot actually then made it
2: happen. Yeah, yeah, we did. Um, the spaceship tour, uh, we needed like two sets of crew, so you do like an, an A show and a B show because it took twenty four hours to set it up. So the spaceship tour, there'll be a crew to set the spaceship tour up, but then we do like a a non spaceship gig the night before with a different crew. Then move on to the the next town and do the spaceship tour and then move on back to the other one.
1: <laughs> that is amazing. I love this. And Kenny Wheeler, Bill Wheeler, if you're listening, Paul's tour management team, you say, You've got it easy. And, and actually, yeah. Roger Noel, head roadie for Paul Weller as well. You got it easy, guys. Come on. You're not able to build a spaceship for goodness sake.
2: And it was and the audience just could not believe it when that spa- when that spaceship opened up and all the smoke and the the lasers and the, the noise, the sheer noise of this spaceship. Opening up and 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 closing down. There's no way, any other show you go and see. The band close the show, go off. And they'd always come back and do an encore. There's there's no way you can. There's going to be an encore with with the spaceship. That this the whole <laughs> closed down. <laughs> are, you <locked laughs> in, are you locked inside? <laughs> the audience were just like in disbelief almost. I mean, it got, it was an amazing tour and he got great reviews. Yeah.
1: The thing about this band as well were, uh, I mean, it's not the visuals and the live performance and like, but my God, the back castle, the songs you had in your armory. When we think about songs like Living Thing and Telephone Line and Sweet Talking, well, don't bring me, or don't bring you down, all these great songs. And, and it was really interesting. The other day we were watching me and my, my eight year old watching Guardians of the Galaxy 2 in preparation for the new film. And the whole opening sequence, I don't know if you've seen it is Groots
2: of the Tiny Tree and Mr. Blue Sky. And you're like, my God, what a banging tune. I've been lucky to some real geniuses really i mean roy wood is some writer you know amazing and then jeff lynn and then i go on to in with black sabbath and i'm working with tony iomi these guys are just brilliant and the sound was constantly evolving and it's huge across
1: the entire planet like you say you know these, these multi-platinum albums in the us canada australia uh, uk europe it does come you know it does take off here um, but in the meantime in the uk something's happening and we're so and punk and the start of Paul Weller's career and what what did you make of that because it was obviously so different from what you were doing but what did you make of punk what did you make of the Jam
2: well for for a start we were working that much in America uh, and around the world that I didn't we weren't in, in England that much but of course I was aware of it I really didn't like the Sex Pistols I was a bit snobby in thinking well they can't play you know or, How, that's not that's not right. But actually, I, I thought the jam, at work. Uh, yeah, I like them. They did remind me of the move a bit, so, you know, the, the suits and uh, they're very tight as well. So, yeah,
1: yeah, oh yeah, uh, yeah, I like them. It's also, I guess, that thing of the hours putting in, in terms of, you know, as a young age, the hours putting in to make it sound that tight, make it sound that good. They did their work,
2: didn't they, you know? Exactly, just as the move did, yeah.
1: Now... When we get to the style council, so again, a similar period for you where ELO are on top of the world. Um, there's a drummer called Steve White. I don't know if you've ever passed, path, cr- crossed paths with Whitey at all. Absolutely. I right. thought you
2: probably would have done, right? I was sort of compare at something called the world's greatest drummers thing in the Midlands, Coventry, I think. Uh, and it was, it was well done. And I had to do my research and uh, he was one, he was one of those, he was on that bill and, uh, Got to meet him and hopefully bump into him again soon. I wonder what the
1: collective noun is for a, for a group of drummers all in one space. The world's greatest drummers all in one room at the same time. Wonderful. Yeah,
2: I wonder. Yeah. <laughs> one of your listeners
1: will will. Yeah, think. I'm have, to, I'm have to think of that. He actually asked. I asked him if he had a question for you, and he said he has. So he said, "Who are you listening to as a young drummer? Your influences, and what do you think is the difference between great British drummers?" and great American drummers. And he says, please pass on my kind regards, Dan." So I'll do that as well.
2: Hmm. It, it, I haven't mentioned John Bonham. And when, I, when the move started, John Bonham used to come and watch me play. And I was the loudest drummer in, in the Midlands. And I think I influenced John a bit. And then, he, he, joined Led, then he, he joined Led Zeppelin. And we became good friends, me and Bonzo. And he just overtook me. He became just amazing. John is still my favourite drummer. What he could do with one bass drum was, like, unbelievable. I then became the second loudest drummer in the (laughs) (laughs) Midlands.
1: I mean, this is going to sound like an utterly ridiculous question, Bev, so I do apologise, right? But never been behind a kit, never drums in my life. Is it literally
2: how hard you hit it makes it louder? Where you hit it? What is the thing about that? Well, yes, you do. It's, it, it is, it is a physical thing. Yeah. Keith Moon was loud. I used to love Moon. Moonie was all over the place, but I love watching him play. Uh, and so is, and Paul Weller loves Moonie as well. It is that. Yeah. It's how hard you hit those drums and how, you know, how hard you use us for pedals, uh, and it's physical. It really is. Yeah.
1: yeah, 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 yeah. This is not, I mean, this is not a relaxing instrument where we're just chilling. It's, you know, it's because even, uh, like, Paul just started his European tour last night, and um these sets are, like, two hours long, and you would have been the same thing or these big stadium tours you're doing. Big, long shows, and that's a long time to be putting
2: that much effort into anything, isn't it? The, the hard, probably the hardest gig I had was when I joined Black Sabbath, uh, yeah, yeah, for physicality. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that was in 1883. And I, on, I was in, I did two American tours, a European tour. We, we headlined Reading Festival and we had Ian Gillen as lead singer uh, at the time. Tony, uh, I am um, guitar, and guitarist. He's a butler on bass and a guy called Jeff Nichols on keyboard who you couldn't see. He was hidden away in the side of the stage. But that, but I really, and I went, I went back a couple more times and, and, and Tony remains my. It's he was just his best man at my wedding, Tony, a few months ago.
1: Oh, nice. I love all these connections. And you keep in, when friendships are made with you, Bev, they stay friendships, don't they? They're lifelong
2: things. Well, well yeah, I, I'm still in touch with, I uh, still keep in touch with Roy Wood and Denny Lane. I haven't seen him, but I, we, we keep in touch. I have lost touch with Jeff Lynn, but i you know, I, I still think he's one of the, you know, he, what he's done. For the music industry, he's just <laughs> remarkable, and it, and a dream come true because he he was such a Beatles fan, and then to end up working with them, and that that last couple of John Lennon singles that he restructured and, and then the travelling is I mean wow yeah I oh know God absolutely and um
1: well let's talk Weller so Wake Up The Nation was the album and um, Paul invited you to play on a couple of songs Moonshine the album opener I think if I'm right to say and Wake Up The Nation the title track yeah. and um I love this story the fact that he told you he was a second choice <laughs> and that Mooney would have would have been first choice, but they were such big fans of the move and what you were doing him and Simon Dyne, the producer on that as well, and he said that it was like him being a ten year old move fan again, which I thought was lovely
2: yeah he's it, it, obviously a, a genuine fan I mean he even said you young than old you old stage gear of you that you know that I can have <laughs> and I, you, know, you would have been welcome to uh, but I, I really i I wish I had kept him it, you know he was a genuine fan, which is lovely.
1: Yeah, brilliant. And obviously, Paul has a drummer in the band. It wasn't Steve White at that time, it was Steve Pilgrim. Um, so there must have been something that he wanted from you to bring to those songs, to bring to that sound that's something a bit different, which is always nice. But what was the brief? What did he say he wanted from you?
2: He said, I'd like you to imagine what Keith Moon would play on, on these tracks and, you know, do the same. and that was fine by me because I'm, I'm, Mo- I'm a Mooney fan anyway, and I like his style. So he influenced me, Keith Moon. Now, my impression of Keith Moon on the drums, I mean, incredible,
1: but he's also, it's Animal from the Muppets. It's pretty, yeah. brunette, you know, it was that it. You had to bring that in as that. I don't,
2: I'm not sure that he kept time that, that well, Mooney, because uh, he was such an animal. But he had in, in John was all was an amazing bass player, too. And I think he held it together. He held it back. Brought Mooney back if he was getting out of time, you know, getting too excited.
1: So Charles Reese was the engineer in the studio that day. So Sir so Charles, um, he says, ask him about his ride cymbal. He's got a wonderful solid groove and makes the drums sound deep and tight with a dash of laid back. Great guy to work with. Absolutely loved that session. So, yeah, tell me about your ride cymbal.
2: I think, the, the, yeah, um, well, it's Zildjian, all, all my symbols are uh, from, of Edis, Zildjian. It's just ones that I picked out, you know, Zildjian inv- inv- invited me to, I think it was interesting, their place in Boston. And I've, have got, I've still got them to this day. I mean, they're amazing. I've got two great r- ride cymbals. One, one with a massive bell, uh, like a 10 inch bell in the middle of it. It used to work well on Mr. Blue Sky. Bunk, 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 bunk. That one, yeah. On the record, that's actually me playing a, a fire extinguisher, if, a um, bit of trivia.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I had no idea about that. Yeah. <laughs> Why?
2: <laughs> Did you not have a drum kit around or it just sounded better or what? We were very experimental and um trying to do different things, you know, and I spotted the obviously you can have a fire extinguisher in a studio. I wonder what that sounds like. And uh, yeah, and Mr. Blue Sky, dun, 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 that's the um <laughs> <That's a part. laughs> I'm going to hear that song in such
1: a different way, which is hilarious, given how many times <laughs> I've heard that song. You know, now suddenly we're we're all going to listen in a slightly different way than we have before. I mean, the lovely thing, Bev, as well, is that you're you know you're still making music, you're still playing live with your band as well. This is still such a big important thing for you. I mean, this is if we you know if we cut you in half, there's a pair of drumsticks in there somewhere, right?
2: Yeah, well, for years I've been touring with the Bev Bevan Band and a show called Stand Up and Rock with, with Jasper Carrot, uh, where Jasper comes on does half hour comedy, then my band, we go on and do 30, 40 minutes, Jasper comes back on, does another half hour, then we go back on and do more music, and then we let Jasper come up at the end and play a couple of status quo songs.
1: This sounds like the best night ever. Man, I need to get. Where's this in Birmingham?
2: This has been doing great business about the last 10 years all over the country, really. I need to get with one of these. It... This sounds fabulous. Well, he reckons he's retired now from doing that, but he might change his mind. Who knows? And for the last few years, I've also been with Quill. My wife, Joy, is the lead singer. We recently released an album called Riding Rainbows, which I'm really proud of. There's some great, great players in it. A lovely, Kate McWilliam, fiddle player. Superb. Abby Brant, another three girls in the band. Uh, he is a wonderful keyboard player and a good blues singer, bluesy type singer. Phil Tree on bass is a really good singer too. And Lee Evans on guitar, extraordinarily good guitar player. Quill cool a really good band. We're going in the studio in June to make an and a new album, which is provisionally called Midland Beat, because we're going to do cover versions of songs by Midland bands. Start up; it'll be The Move and ALO and Black Sabbath, but Duran Duran, Ocean Colour Scene. I was going to
1: say you need a bit of Ocean Colour Scene in there, don't you, Simon Fowler, Steve yeah. Praddock and all that? Yeah,
2: Steve Winwood, Moody Blues, Slade. I think it'll be a really good album. now and then we start touring only around the Midlands in um, October or uh, December.
1: Okay, and, and Quill have been around for a long, long time, haven't
2: they? Joy formed this band, which is at school. So this is our 50-year anniversary. No way, wow. Yeah, or Quill's 50-year anniversary, not mine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it'll be fun to too as that. This July, it'll be 60 years since I opened with Danny Lane, the Different ones for uh, the Beatles. And I bet that time's passed in like oh. a bl- blink of an eye, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> There's so
1: many highlights in a career that continues. You must absolutely still get such a kick out performing live and, and making new music as well.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. I still get a thrill out of it. I just bought myself an uh, electronic drum kit, which I've never had before, uh, so I can play at home and not make a, a racket. And I'm really enjoying that, uh, learning these new songs that we're going to record. And I've still got so many drum kits. I've got like five drum kits. I've still got my original kit from ELO, my kit from Black Sabbath, the kit that I used with Quill. I've just been re-sponsored again with Signia now. So... Yeah, it's still all, all happening. I mean, I won't ask
1: you where you keep these. Presumably they're not they're not at home, though, right? The, in the front room, all these drum kits set
2: up. They're only stored in a, a sort of a garage, so...
1: Uh, I mean, I feel for joy because it must be... I mean, thank goodness you're getting the electric kit because it must be quite hard living with the second loudest drummer in Birmingham, right? <laughs> yeah,
2: it would. Uh, yes, it would. It's not the um, quietest instruments, <laughs>
1: Hey Bev, look, this has been so lovely. I've loved chatting with you. I mean, thank you for the music. I say this to a lot of my guests, but you know, these songs mean so much to people, and they're you know, the fact that we're talking about these songs, like you say, like you know, from you know, fifty years plus years later, is remarkable. That these are you know, these are part of the fabric of our culture, of our country, isn't it? That must be such an amazing feeling to have that legacy with you.
2: Yeah, it is, and I, I, we play music all the time, you know, and and, but and I feel the same way about. I've got lots of favourites, you know, going back back to the Beatles, if you like, or Elvis or Paul Weller, you know. So, um, music is just so important. it's That's it's the fabric of our lives, almost.
1: Hey, look, this has been like, so lovely. I've got two questions for you before you go, OK? So you're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the jam, the Style Council, or solo. What would you go with? Well,
2: I'd like to hear Wake Up The Nation again, actually.
1: That's a tune and half, that. <laughs> it's a terrific song. Because also, I guess, in the studio... You weren't playing that live with a band because he was layering things up on pro
2: tools and stuff like that, yeah. It was quite, it was quite a weird session, in that respect, because I, I think I put the drums on last, which is you know unusual. I drums that generally go down first, and you build on that. So to, to do it this way was it's not the easiest way to record.
1: And were you hearing it all together? You were hearing the completed song with Paul singing on it and then playing
2: along. He sent me the demos. I don't know the vocals on, but uh, the, the, everything else was, was there. Yeah. I think there was only Paul there, as I remember, and obviously the um, engineer and producer.
1: Steve Craddock's on um, Wake Up the Nation and, and Terry Edwards on saxophone, but they weren't there with you at the
2: time. No, were they? no, no. no.
1: <laughs> it's funny, though, isn't it? Because you're making music with people that, that you maybe have never ever met.
2: Yeah, well, that that does happen, doesn't it, in the, in the industry. Yeah. You know, you don't bring me flowers in mills. Diamond and Barbara Streisand, and they, they never even met each other. So this did it. In, separately and I say yeah these things happen
1: and such a different world then whether you're building stuff up on a computer layering stuff up versus yeah. layering up on tape which you were having back in the day you were having to do it that way with the, the early days of ELO and all that
2: oh the move days in particular that the, the tape you could, you could it'd become almost transparent you know you can't get anything more on it you know <laughs>
1: yeah <laughs> final question so the purpose of this podcast Bev is for me to meet lovely people like yourself to hear your memories of your story of your career your life and those connections with Paul Weller but it's for really for me me to get the interview with Paul Weller that I never managed during my radio career. Um, I was a radio presenter. I gave it up. That was my one big regret. And um, I never got to interview Paul. I've never got to interview Paul. So I created a podcast. We're now on episode 140 plus, and it right. still hasn't happened, I should add. So, you know, Paul, if you're listening, come on,
2: get in touch. Um,
1: but if it happens, what should I ask him, Bev? What would you like to know from Mr. Weller?
2: I think I know the answer, really. I mean, I, I, you know, you, why did he leave the jam? But then I think I've, we probably know because he wanted to expand.
1: It's such a brave decision, though, that, isn't it? When you're top of the, like you mentioned, t- yeah. you're top of the charts, top of your game, top of the tr- you know, top of the tree, biggest band, and, and then, bosh, you just, overnight, done.
2: Yeah, well, like, yeah, I'd like to hear him explain that. Absolutely.
1: And as somebody who's been in this industry for such a long time, are there questions that you appreciate? Are there things that, you know, when you're interviewed, because you're also a radio presenter as well, we should mention this as well, right, with the BBC, so, you know, full respects and all that.
2: I don't have a BBC show anymore, because, because the BBC have become... The, oh, the local, the local radio thing is um, yeah. a scam. A lot of my pals have, have lost their jobs. Here, but it was just a once a week show for me. It was a fabulous show because it was two hours long with the BBC. There's no adverts to worry about, and I could play anything I wanted. And I've got a pretty massive record collection. And um I, so that's what I did. I like playing songs to, you know, saying to people, listen to this, you might not have heard this before. But one of my favorite Paul Watt albums is his cover album. Studio one fifty is great, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Great. And so I used to play tracks from that. People wouldn't weren't aware of it. Uh and I used to love it introducing people to people they've probably never heard of someone like Mickey Newbury, who's one of our favourite songwriters. I used to like the education sort bit of it, you know, I think I was educated or turning people onto things. I may not have liked it, but good chance they did. And they thanked me for it.
1: It's so important that because I think in a world of algorithms now and Spotify and things, those little endorsements, those and you get that from Weller all the time as well, where he's, he's recommending an artist or a band, and then suddenly you open yourself up to not just new music but the back catalogue and all that. And I think the power of great radio presenters when they're introducing you to new music and new bands, and new acts, and by that I just mean new discovery. I don't mean necessarily bands that are just starting now, but you're telling us about stuff in the past, and you, you know that's that's so important. And I think the, the local radio thing, the BBC is, I mean, it's an absolute scandal. I started at the BBC local radio and you're losing these huge big personalities and where you are there's some massive personalities who've been on the radio for like 25 30 years who had to apply for their own jobs it's an absolute disgrace
2: i know i i, I was i can't know if i was in the bbc yesterday uh, doing a, a show with a guy called paul franks who's a, a terrific presenter, but his he's, his show it uh, finishes in a couple of months, and he's a great loss. You know, he's so good at what he does.
1: Yeah, and so ingrained in the local community, and they love what they do. They're so brilliant what they do. So yeah, but um,
2: so is there no radio for you at the moment at all,
1: or are you doing it elsewhere? Or
2: no, I'm not. I'm not doing any radio, and but I'm I've been very busy of late, and, uh, and come the, the coming months with the, with a new album and and, and touring or whatever. Uh, but but I, I wouldn't rule it out.
1: Before you go, then give me a couple of recommendations. Now you haven't got the radio show. You must be itching to tell people about things to listen to. Well,
2: I re- do reviews in the Sunday Mercury. So I get stuff sent to me to listen to and to review. It's mostly retro stuff. And I'm getting well, what is lovely though. I'm getting loads of vinyl now sent. Because vinyl's coming back big time. I had a great one recently. I had a, a Mark Bolden album called Rockin' and Rolling. It was only released in Japan back in... 20-odd years ago. And it's just, it's probably the best Mark Ball album ever. It's really fabulous. That's a great recommendation. Okay, well,
1: we're all going to dig into that, Beth. <laughs> we're going to go and yeah. find that. <laughs> hey, man, this has been so lovely. Thank you so much for sparing the time. Thank you for connecting and um, thanks most of all to sharing your stories and your music, mate.
2: Thanks, Dan, and I'll I meet Paul, so I'm sure I will, in Canuck Can chase. So I'll ask him if he'll come on his show.
1: Well, bless you, my friend. I appreciate that. Thank you so much, man.
2: All right, cheers.
1: My thanks once again to Bev Bevan. Do check out the show notes for this podcast on my website, wellerfanpodcast.com You'll find a little playlist that we've put together of some recommending listening of Bev's playing and songwriting and even singing on there as well, you know. Plus loads of details about The Move, ELO and Quill as we talked about there as well, including links to how you can see them live this year. A real delight. Thank you once again, Bev. Now, whilst you're on the website, if you fancy it, head to my store. You can get yourself our official podcast mug, t-shirt for the summer, maybe a shopping bag as well. Go on, dive on in there. And if you fancy it, you can buy yourself a virtual coffee. It's only three quid for one. You can subscribe if you fancy it as well. Show your support to the podcast. It's massively appreciated. Let's say hello to some of you who've been doing exactly that over the past week or so. Hello, Martin Morrow. Thank you to you for your virtual coffee. Hello, Brian G. Hi. Thanks, mate. Mike's Steer, thank you to you for your virtual coffee as well. Hello to Smeg from the 829 Club. Hello, Jen. Hi, Jen. Thank you so much for your virtual coffee. Hello to Stephen Cartwright. Hello, sir. Hi, Stu Burns. Hello to Jane the Jam Tarts with a Heart. Hello to Nick Keane Hello, Roger Clark. Thank you to you for your virtual coffee. Hello, Alex McLaughlin. He says, I think it was Dylan Jones talking about the quality of Weller's albums who said that his Jew a duffer. Yeah, I think you were right, actually. He says, I might be paraphrasing slightly. No, I think that was pretty much bang on. He said, I feel the same about the podcast, Tan, but every week is brilliant. Sarah J. Morris was a fantastic fantastic guest. What a voice. Well, thank you, Alex, and cheers for your support. Hello to Phil Baker. Hello, Night Design. Thank you to all of you for your virtual coffee. You can get involved on my website, paulwellerfanpodcast.com Just head to the store. Do really appreciate all your support. Thanks so much. Don't forget, you can get in touch on social media. If you head to Facebook or Instagram, just search for Paul Weller Fan Podcast, or on Twitter, you'll find me at Weller Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.